Hey there, conductors. If you've ever felt that you're not quite sure what to do next when you're studying a score, maybe you don't even know where to start with a difficult piece. Maybe you study one piece too much and then you realize at the first rehearsal that you don't know another one well enough. Or maybe you're a new conductor and you don't know what score study is. I'm excited to share that I'm finally publishing and sharing my score study checklist. I've been refining this for 12 years now, and I'm so excited to share it. It is going to walk you through my structure, my process to make sure that I learn every score that I need to learn well enough and so that nothing falls through the cracks. So it covers everything that you need to know. There's a link in the show notes. Go ahead and click it, sign up, and you'll get that score study checklist sent right to your email. You'll also get access to an eight-minute video of me explaining what each section is and how I use it to organize all the music that I need to learn. It's only eight minutes, so it's not going to take you a whole hour to learn how to study better, how to put up a process for your score study and how to make sure that nothing is falling through the cracks. So again, click the link in the show notes, and I hope to see you soon. Now please enjoy this episode of Podium Time. Welcome to Podium Time, the podcast for conductors and students. If you see conducting as mostly task-oriented traffic direction, then the Laban work is probably not all that important. But if you see conducting as a movement art where you're trying to, like I said, embody the music to the best of your ability and communicate as much useful information, but no more than necessary, (laughs) then this work is definitely gonna be relevant for you. Hi there, everybody. Jeremy DeCuebus here, and I am your host for today's trip into the world of Laban Movement Analysis for Conductors, led by Dr. Charles Gambetta, Artistic Director of the Embodied Conducting Institute. Today we talk about what Laban Analysis is and dig into how it can be applied to conducting and how Charles is leading that charge and incorporating it into his workshops and his teaching. Now, if you've done any Laban training or heard us talk about it on the show, beware that most conductors just scratch the surface with it. Charles is the real deal and has made it his life's work to teach Laban principles so that conductors can enrich and improve their conducting. I'd like to give a sincere thanks to all of our patrons on Patreon who support the podcast monetarily and help make Podium Time possible, and for all the members of our Facebook group, The Inner Circle, who help with finding guests and submitting questions. You can support the podcast monetarily at patreon.com slash podiumtimepod, get exclusive behind-the-scenes extras, or support by joining our Facebook group, or just sharing the episodes on your Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and with your friends. So thanks so much for listening, and we'll be sharing links from Charles on all of our social media, so be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Podium Time Pod. You can find the videos that Charles mentions at the Institute's website, embodiedconducting.com, or at the Institute's Facebook page. Just enter your email, and you'll be sent links to the videos. Now, here's our interview with Dr. Charles Gambetta. Yeah, and then we just we just kind of go with the flow. Um, no, no surprises. Uh, there's you. You're already you're already you're already in Laban land by right. going with the flow. I mean, you know, movement movement is a river, yeah. and flow is the ongoing, never stopping movement of that river, and and other features of movement kind of crop up and 
you know, subside for, uh, up from the flow. So then uh, it's amazing. Anyway, <laughs> it's, it's, it's great to be here. You know, awesome. thank thank you very much for the invitation. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, and thank you, thank you for rescheduling and and, and uh, no problem making the time for us. Well, maybe let's let's start right there. Luke and I have both have both done. Um, is it Laban or Laban? How did it's, you say it? It's Laban. Laban. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Luke and I have both done like a little bit of of work on that with our previous teachers. But would you give us would you give us an overview? Sure. I, let me start by telling, by saying what it is not. Okay. It's it's not a little add-on module. It's not just the eight basic effort actions, which mm-hmm. is where most conductors begin and end with the Laban work. That's yeah. That's where it started and ended. <laughs> right. It is a comprehensive system for analyzing and observing. And the most important part is experiencing movement mm-hmm. from a totally different perspective. Uh, and since as conductors, we're movers, that's, that's our stock and trade. That's the language we use to communicate musical expression. It just makes sense that you'd want to, you'd want to have at your disposal such a tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, 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 if there is a downside, it's that we as conductors have to step outside of the discipline of music in order to understand this. And, you know, as conductors, we already have to learn so much. There's some, there's sometimes resistance. Oh man, I got to learn another thing. You know, I, I already have to know all these languages and I have to know all this terminology and I have to know style and I have to know orchestration and theory and history and I, I better know something about art and literature and the human condition. You know, if, if we're going, yeah. if we're going to develop a point of view about a piece of music, we have to, we have to know something about the human condition beyond our own limited existence. But it's certainly, I think it's certainly more than worth the effort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So where would one, where would one start to learn this, this framework? If you're a conductor, there aren't many places. There are a lot of places where you can you can find a teacher that can teach you anything you need to know about the music. But uh, I I know several other conductors that use this work, but unfortunately, they have they've only scratched the surface. And sometimes the scratches they make are either ill-informed or incorrectly informed. And so there's a lot, there's a lot of this lot, this glob and work out there that is, is not being taught correctly. Uh, but you can certainly come to me and, and I'm doing everything I can <laughs> to correct the, you know, the, the misunderstandings that people have about the work. Uh, I have, uh, I have three workshops. I, it's not I, it's we. I actually have an educational corporation. It's called the Embodied Conducting Institute. Uh, why Embodied Conducting? Because as conductors, it's much more than beating and directing traffic. Mm-hmm. Your, your goal is to fully embody the music and transmit that perspective of embodiment to your collaborators in the orchestra. 
And, uh, and, you know, embodiment has become kind of a buzzword in, in many disciplines. But uh, for me, if I'm, I'm oh, and by the way, this is earlier, maybe earlier than I thought we were going to mention it, but <laughs> I'm just about to release a series of instructional videos on the embodied conducting. And so I think the question is, where do you start? Mm-hmm. And the first, the first few lessons are going to be about the whole. And then I go to part. In other words, I, if, instead of diving right in, I get people to think about the questions they need to ask about as conductors. And traditionally, right, the question is, how do I beat that? Mm-hmm. Or uh, should I do it? Should that be in, should I subdivide or should this, should, should I be beating in two or six or what? Uh, the questions you should be asking are, gee, what, where in my body do I need to start this movement? For mm-hmm. example, how do I want the movement to flow through my body? How, what's the sequence I, of the movement through my body? How much of my limb do I want to use? What kind of space do I want to create in order to invite the sound in? Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of shapes do I make with my limbs and my body in order to create the, the space that best represents the musical expression? Uh, and so the first step is to hopefully raise awareness of your body as your instrument. Mm-hmm. Okay. My my main concern or complaint is that conducting instruction as is taught now continues to focus far too much on the tip of the baton and the and the trace patterns that the tip of the baton draws as you go through the beat patterns. And I want to focus on the body. The con, the the baton is just a tool. Mm-hmm. The baton by itself doesn't make any music. And I can, I, I'm comfortable either way. I can conduct with a baton or without. I personally prefer with because I'm lazy and I find that the baton focuses my energy and, and allows me to move more economically because it magnifies everything I do with my, with my arm and my hand. Uh, I, I find that if I don't use a baton, I have to be much more physically active and there's nothing wrong with that. And maybe on some pieces I do choose to not use a baton, but most of the time I do. Uh, but the first, yeah, the first, the first thing I do is introduce this whole concept, this, this idea that you should be consciously asking these questions and then consciously making these decisions right now. Conductors are operating most, and there are conductors who are quite successful without the lobin work. Uh, would, would they benefit from it? I, I would say definitely yes, any conductor. I don't care who, what name you give me, because without this work, you're, you're ignoring or eliminating about half of your movement possibilities mm-hmm. because we fall into patterns, uh, pattern, beat patterns. Literally. That's, that, but, that's <laughs> yeah. just, but that's just one kind of pattern. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. But we fall into patterns of movement preference. Everybody has a movement signature. They have ways that they prefer to move. They have ways of moving with which they are comfortable. And once you ask them to get outside of that comfort zone, they basically are lost. They, 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 they just haven't moved that way. Yeah. And I know that was the case for me. This is what spurred my, um, my search for something more that I felt I was missing in my conducting is that at, at some point in the late eighties and I'd been conducting since 73. Yeah. 73. This was 1988. I realized I'm not getting any better. <laughs> you know, I, I I'm learning new pieces. Yeah. Uh, I'm understanding more about music. I can analyze. I can mark up my score. Uh, I can even run a rehearsal fairly well. But I'm just not improving physically. I just, I hit a wall. And it was at that point I decided, okay, my education is clearly incomplete. So I I thought, I got to go back to school. And uh, so, and... I said, there's got to be something out there that's going to help me. And I was, uh, I was attending a conductor's guild conference in 1990. I think it was 1993, January. Mm -hmm. And it was at uh, Columbia. And I saw this session and it was a breakout. You know, I, I, I didn't make it to the guild conference this year. But if you've been, you know there are ses- there you have choices. You can go to the session over here on uh, new new music, mm-hmm. or you can go to the session over here on developing rehearsal techniques. And that was the case with the Lobin set. It's the Lobin session. It simply said introduction to Lobin movement analysis, and I had no idea what it was. But I said, "Oh, movement! I'm going to check it out." Yeah, and I went. Uh, and it was two hours of mostly experiential. Here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to, you know, move this way. I want you to explore this space. I want you to vis- I want you to feel your spine lengthening, et cetera, et cetera. But what struck me was the clinician was nine months pregnant, and. Uh, it looked to me like she could have her baby right there. It was that big. And yet in spite of this, she was moving with this amazing grace, ease, and confidence that I had never seen mm-hmm. in an individual pregnant or not. And, yeah, there, you know, gymnasts know how to move. Dancers know how to move. But there was something about the way her entire body was connected and that she was moving with conscious thought and intention and uh, going after a specific goal with her mm-hmm. movement that struck me. And I said, oh, okay, I'm going to have to check this out, this lobbing stuff out after I finish school because I figured, well, I'm not going to find this. And so I start back. I, I had an incomplete master's from when I was in the Army. And I started back in fall of 95 at Teachers College, Columbia. 
and I had to find an elective. I was one elective shy. So I'm going through the course catalog. Now I have enough psychology. Now I, I, I don't want swimming. No, <laughs> no, I don't need a creative writing course. No. And there it was introduction to lob and movement analysis. Mm-hmm. And I, so I signed up for that course. And by the end of the semester, it was very clear to me that this was what I'd been looking for. Yeah. And that was a night that was fall of 1995. So I've been at this for 25 years using and mm-hmm. deepening my understanding of movement for 25 years. Uh, and there's so much to tell that I'd, I don't even know how many of these lessons I'm going to, I'm going to put online, but I know it's going to, I know it's going to make a difference for anybody that chooses to give it a shot. As long, as long as you approach it with an open mind and that you're willing to accept that conducting is really a movement art that also requires an unbelievable amount of musical knowledge and human knowledge then you'll you'll find a way to apply the work to your own conducting. Yeah. So at your workshops, do you uh, teach this through the whole workshop? Yes, I do. Uh, the workshops are a combination of practical experience in front of an orchestra or a string sextet. Uh, we have our our schedule runs from evening to morning. In the evening, we have the conductors get up and do parts of whatever the piece they're conducting is, and we focus on the parts where we know they're going to have difficulty. And then the next morning, they work with full orchestra. Mm-hmm. But every afternoon, uh, for an hour, we do the embodied conducting work. And it's not so much about conducting technique Mm-hmm. It's really, like I've been saying, it's really more about raising to the level of conscious thought all of these questions and decisions that you have to make as a conductor. Yeah. What do those, those afternoon classes look like? Well, no baton, okay. at least for the first week. And we start by getting acquainted with our bodies. I start by talking about body attitude. Body attitude is sounds like posture, but it's more than that. It certainly involves posture. It involves how your how your body how connected your body is in whatever the activity is. And then I begin to introduce the idea of total connectivity. So many conductors are disembodied arms. <laughs> you know, their, their arms move, but if there's no connection to the core. And mm-hmm. so I give them little things to do with their hands and hands and fingers first. And then I connect it to the elbow, mm-hmm. which in Laban parlance is called mid limb. And then I connect it to the shoulder area. And that's called proximal, proximal, close, close to the core. And then finally, I connect, I show them how to connect the core with their hand. And this is something that most of them have never experienced. It sounds easy, 
but it's more simple than it is easy. Mm-hmm. And, and all of these things really amount to little scales and etudes that if you're going to pursue, if you're going to pursue conducting from the perspective of being a conscious mover rather than an instinctive mover, you have to do every day. I mean, I, I've been playing bass since 1965, and I still do scales, arpeggios, and etudes when I practice. I still warm up with long tones. And so I, I emphasize to the students that this is you, – you obviously, you can intellectually understand this work rather quickly because it's not complicated. <laughs> but to get it into your body requires time and a little bit of effort. Because, you know, our minds are fast. Our bodies are slow. <laughs> some, some, some slower than others. I am, not, I am not particularly kinesthetically gifted. I, do, I have done a lot of athletics. Uh, I had a horse for 30 years, and we, you know, we'd ride, and I'd, I'd, I know how to use my body on a horse. And all of those things help. But there's something about being able to call up, like I said, these questions about, oh, then, and what begins to happen is that you say, oh, this isn't working because I'm in the wrong space, or this isn't working because I have the wrong, I have the wrong dynamic quality, the wrong effort. I should be free, but I'm bound. I should be light, but I'm strong. I should... I shouldn't be direct, but I'm indirect. Or, excuse me, I should be, let's see, I I wait, I still have to think, wait, time, space, and flow. Oh, I said flow, free. And and then you have a solution. And I found when I was doing workshops, most of what was taught was, no, do it this way. Here, this is how you do this. And conducting, as it's taught now, is mostly a closed system. Mm-hmm. And it's framed by the beat patterns. You know, that's, everything's beating. And, and the Laban system is an open system. And by the way, Laban is not static. It has changed tremendously oh, yeah. since, since the death of Rudolf Laban. There have been things added to it. There's uh, new ways to look at certain things about movement. Uh, whole applications have been developed besides conducting. Uh, there's a, 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 a psychiatrist, Judith Kestenberg, that has developed a movement profile that she uses in the care and treatment of young people. She approaches it from the movement from a developmental aspect. And what she finds is sometimes there's something missing in the developmental progression of a patient's movement that causes them to act and behave in certain ways. Okay. Uh, there's an ice skating coach that uses Laban. I wouldn't be surprised if there's baseball coaches that use it. Um, gymnasts use it. So, where the conductors would be in very good company to use this word. Yeah. Go ahead, Luke. Well, I was just going to say, it sounds kind of similar to, um, you know, the Alexander technique and how that's used outside of the conducting realm. Right. 
you know, for many different things, you know, especially the body work. Right. The, I, I am not an Alexander work or a Feldenkrais expert. And I think both of those systems have merit. But the difference for me is the both of both Alexander and Feldenkrais are largely therapeutic. Okay. They're they're oh you have you have to fix something or uh, you have to hold your this you have to hold your head in a certain way you know if you know anything about Alexander technique one of the first things they tell teach you is how to stand up from sitting Mm -hmm. and you. Put your head forward, blah, 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 body, and then you rise out of the chair. Well, okay, that's one way to stand up, but there are infinite ways to stand up. Mm-hmm. And the, the Lobin work meets you wherever you are and doesn't say, oh, this is the deficiency. Oh, this is wrong. And I, I, I never tell my students, I say, no, that's wrong. I don't do that. <laughs> I, I say, I think you need to find another solution. Mm-hmm. you know, because it's not working. And yeah. more times than not, I don't, t- I don't tell them, especially by the second week of the course, because they now have some tools that they can begin to use. And what I find with most students is they're afraid to try because it's unfamiliar. So you really have to push them a little bit and encourage them. And I said, look, the worst thing that can happen is that, it's not the right choice. And then you go back and make another choice. This is the perfect place because you're safe. You don't have to worry about what the orchestra might think of you, uh, you know, next week when you come back to work or you don't have to worry about how you look. And and by the way, both of my orchestras, the one in Romania and the one in uh, Bulgaria had been working with me long enough to where they've begun to assimilate some of this work and the the ones that speak English will actually start to, the conductor, they'll say, no, no, you, you need free, you know, or you need, <laughs> they, they, they start to tell them, they, they give them little hints about mm-hmm. uh, what they do. And they're infinitely patient because they've been working with me long enough to see the fruits of this work. They see the conductors radically improve over 10 days to two weeks. Yeah. Um, when I was when I was reading the paper you sent us earlier, the question that kept coming to my mind is, and it and may it may connect with the with the video series you're going to do, is at what point in in the conducting education is this should this be introduced? Do you think at right from oh. the beginning or after some experience? It does. It, ultimately, I don't think it matters. Okay. But if you start from the point, the, the Lobin point of view and the Lobin approach. I find that the beginners progress very rapidly and the more experienced conductors struggle more with the work because they have the, the more experience you have, the more heavily embedded <laughs> your movement patterns, patterns become. And yeah. You it you have to work harder to repattern. It's you know I find the same thing happens when I teach an adult student bass versus a child or a, a teenager. They have the the adult student has all of this pre-existing mus neuromuscular traffic that's jamming their highway, and so it's very difficult for them to build these new pathways 
because there's already a lot of traffic there. But a, chi- a child or a, any anywhere, I think the cut the traditional cutoff is uh, these pedag- instrumental pedagogues say that if you don't start an instrument by the time you're 15, 16, it's going to become very difficult for you. Not impossible, but mm-hmm. more difficult. And I find almost universally that people, the, the greener the conductor, as long as they accept the work and do what I ask them to do, and it, I will say, I, when I started this in 2008, I got a lot of resistance. You know, well, this is not going to help, or ah, this, is, this is just uh, smoke and mirrors, or uh, it, uh, that doesn't really matter. You know, Ed, you don't need to be totally connected. You don't need to know what effort you're using. Just do whatever you want. Uh, well, there's a lot of do whatever you want in the conducting world today. And we see where that's taken us, right? Um, yeah. Be- beginners have an edge early on. But, you know, it depends on how serious you are about the work and whether or not you actually do every day. Because what I teach is cumulative. In other words, okay. you don't work on hands and, okay, I got that knocked. I'm going on to something else. It's It's... It's really just like learning an instrument. And so, and like I said, what you're learning is the conductor's instrument, the body. And I'm, I'm not alone in that point of view. I know a lot of uh, conductors from times past used to speak of the orchestra as their instrument. Um, you know, Sherkin, Bernstein, Reiner, whoever. But uh, I'm not alone in... I'm not alone in my opinion either. Uh, Fred, uh, uh, Frederick Fennell was the, the one that said, uh, "Your real instrument is your body," and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, that's pretty good company, you know. <laughs> and there are others now that have that view, but really, what I find the more I, the more I use this work is that I am not I'm not dictating, I am not commanding, I'm collaborating. And what I move, I am not telling them. Well, I, no, we can talk about what you need to show and, yeah. and what's most important in a minute. But it's not so much that I'm showing them when to play or what to play. It's that I'm moving in such a way that I'm connecting with them and they're coming with me willingly. Mm-hmm. And I'm going with them because it's a two-way street. You know, I, it's a lot of time less experienced conductors forget that it's not just what's in your mind's ear or your head. It's what's coming at you. And a lot of times what you hear is not what you imagine. And you have to be ready to respond to the, what's coming back. It's, like I said, it's give and take. Um, and you can't get so wrapped up in your idealized version of the score that you're not paying attention. I, mm-hmm. you know, for years, you know, I'd be conducting and things would be going really well. And I, I just take a minute, just, oh, just a five seconds to say, Oh, hi, this is really going well. And then almost without exception, meh, something, <laughs> something would happen that would pull me back in. And I realized 
because I allowed myself that moment of self-indulgence, I lost the connection. So I've resigned. Many years ago, I resigned myself to the fact that I don't really get to have fun <laughs> and conducting. Now, you know, in other words, it's, it's not a good time. It's a great time. And I, I'm, I'm both thrilled and humbled to be able to get up and have 35 to 80 people come with me on a musical journey, but it's not really fun. I can look at look back on it afterwards and say how 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 much I was able to accomplish and how satisfied I am. But it's it's so it's so different than performing, and it's totally different than listening. I the, I have more fun listening than I do anything else in music because I can totally devote myself to it. And I can allow myself to get involved emotionally at a much deeper level than I can as a conductor. And quite frankly, as a conductor, the people in the orchestra don't want to see your emotion <laughs> because you're, you're starting to share things that makes many people uncomfortable <laughs> if you get that intimate with them. There's a different kind of intimacy, though, when you begin to connect with them on a deep level that's beyond ego that's even beyond personality. So in other words, they'll come along with you, even if they don't particularly like you, you know, and they'll respect you, even if they don't particularly like you. Uh, it's always better to be liked, don't get me wrong, but, uh, and I'm fortunate, you know, most, most of the people I work with in music, they like me, I like them. It makes for a wonderful partnership. Yeah. But, you know, on occasion, I'll have individuals that are clearly not on my side, but they put that aside. If you can deliver it. And what I tell my students is you're giving what you show is giving them something to play off of. Mm -hmm. Right. In other words, that's the connection. Yeah. I do something and they respond or they do something and I respond. It's like a tennis match or a table tennis. And boy, sometimes it gets fat or yeah, that's probably right. You know, although uh, you, you're alone on your side of the table or court and there's, you know, dozens of people on the other side of the court covering the forecourt and the back and the lines and everything. So mm -hmm. it's, it's fascinating. So when is your next, uh, when's the next workshop that you have coming up? I have three this summer. Uh, the first one is the Advanced Conducting Academy. And that's usually for people that have had at least two years. I have taken, I have, we have taken less experienced people in the past. Uh, usually it's the deadline is passed and I need a person to fill a slot. <laughs> and if they, if they're less experienced and they show promise, I'll take them with conditions. Like I, sometimes I'll say, Okay, we're gonna accept you, but I'm gonna I'm gonna help you with your repertoire list because I've seen you I've seen your audition videos and I know what you need to work on and I know the limitations of your capabilities. So I want to make sure that you have pieces that are acceptable to you, but that will help you the most during your time here. Uh, 
Okay. And that's a, a, an orchestral workshop. We start with a chamber orchestra in the first week and then a full orchestra the second week. We do much larger works in the second week. Usually this year we have Brahms three the second week. We have the Vorschau. All right. Sorry. That's, that's, that's the, uh, that's the wisdom of delayed broadcast. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, Oh, uh, Brahms three, Dvorak eight. Um, oh, what else? Oh, first week we have Beethoven four, um, Mozart thirty nine, uh, Mendelssohn four, uh, an overture. Oh, I think we have the Coriolan overture. Uh, we have a Haydn symphony. I, for the first time, I never, I never programmed this. But I'm gonna. We're gonna do uh, the Oxford Symphony 102. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's not played enough, and everybody wants to do 104. But come on, yeah. mm-hmm. I, I, as much as I like that, I, there's other Haydn that I like too. Uh, and I, I'm trying to think what else we have week two. Ah, go to the website. Yeah, it's all there. <laughs> uh, and the second workshop is designed with novice conductors in mind. That's the Prelude uh, Academy. That's in Greece. That's a plus. Uh, right on, right on the Mediterranean. Yeah. It's not Mykonos, but it's not far. So, <laughs> um, and that we had just used a string sextet, and with or a string quintet rather with piano. So we do, you know, the string parts plus the piano covers the woodwind and brass parts, uh, and. That's designed, like I said, specifically for novice conductors, for music educators that are looking for a really reasonably priced workshop where they can feel safe and supported and fill in the gaps from what I believe is much too short a curriculum (laughs) for music educators. Absolutely. In uh, our higher education system. And I also, I, I, Pro, I add things to the list that are spe- that specifically show up typically on, on graduate auditions and contests. So I have some audition and contest rep on there. And there are more experienced uh, conductors that want a workshop rep specifically to get ready for something like that. And then the last workshop we do is in Vidin, Bulgaria, and that's a concerto workshop. And it's this is the fifth year we've done it. And it's my favorite because I never got to conduct a concerto in school. And I know that's the case for many, if not most, uh, graduate conducting programs. And so I kind of had to learn on the job. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a little scary. But uh, And accompanying is a very specific art. So now you have, you have multiple masters. And the most important are the, the composer being the soloist. And it's this whole process of surrender and trust in orchestral music continues to astound me. And I'm still figuring it out, you know, <laughs> uh, because uh, one of the things I, I ask my students on the first day for second day is, what do conductors control? And of course it's a trick question. Yeah. Or maybe it's not, I don't know, but of course, and the, you know, 
and and it's designed to generate a long list, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, tempo, dynamics, articulation, the phrasing and texture and all of these things. And then I say, okay, we control time. And that's voluntarily. This that's part of that surrender process. The the orchestra surrenders its collective concept of time and tempo and hopefully does what we ask them to do if, <laughs> if unless it's unreasonable sometimes orchestras will fight back not usually they'll just kind of grit their teeth and bear it and other than that everything else is influence okay. it's not control we don't control anything and the other thing we control is ourselves mm-hmm. And the degree to which we have con- conscious control of ourselves is going to heavily influence how successful we are and how efficient we are, both in rehearsal and performance, especially in rehearsal. Mm-hmm. And after I'd been doing this work for about 10 years, I, I was in rehearsal one day and I realized I've already accomplished everything I want to accomplish and there's 35 minutes left of rehearsal. So what it what it happened for me was one I didn't have to I didn't have to explain nearly half as much. And two I didn't have to rehearse. I didn't have to say okay, that wasn't together. We need to do it again because it was together and it was what the score was indicating because I was now moving with conscious intent with the right space and the right shape and the right effort with the right parts of my body. So boy, that, that to me is, that's worth the price of admission right there. Not to yeah. my workshop, but <laughs> to, you know, to the Lobin work is that if I can save all that time, uh, one, I can, I, and I changed how much I want to get done in rehearsal because of this. I had to I had to switch out my rehearsal plan because I'd become so much more efficient. <laughs> I love this idea of you know what do we what do we control because you're right we we don't actually control just anything time. we can just yeah we can just influence just time and, and I didn't that didn't dawn on me right away you know I, yeah I, whoa I, I'm in charge of everything I can you know <laughs> right. No, not really. You're in charge of yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the degree to which you can represent the flow flow of time and the pacing and the phrasing, which is all part of time, that is what really makes or breaks a performance. Mm-hmm. And that I think that's true across the board, whether you're conducting a middle school band or the Vienna Philharmonic. Mm-hmm. Now, the Vienna Philharmonic, as we know, will go on autopilot. And, and you've seen it. You certain, you've seen certain conductors on the New Year's concert that, okay, within, within the first three minutes, okay, they flick the switch, and they're just going to play the way they always play, and they're going <laughs> to totally ignore what's going on in the podium mm-hmm. for whatever reason. You know, maybe... Maybe the conductor is not familiar 
with the traditions in Vienna. Maybe uh, they, they they don't like the tempo. They don't like you know that wh- whatever reason they just and professional orchestras will do that. Mm-hmm. Which brings me, I think, to a really important point. Not so much about lobbing and developing your this is a dirty word technique. We we all think technique is a dirty word. I do mm-hmm. because technique is just a means to an end. It's not an end of itself. And it's just, and there's this, there's this ongoing pedagogical stru- uh, struggles, even now between those who want to think the development of te- stick technique is important and those that think it gets in the way. You know, the reason it gets in the way is because they don't have the tools that would allow every conductor to develop their own personal movement style. Yeah, you're still going to beat four. Yeah, you're, you're still going to beat one. But you, it's impossible for you, no matter how hard you try, you can't conduct like me. Mm-hmm. And vice versa. I can't conduct. I'm Okay, I love Cliver. Everybody loves Cliver, <laughs> right? But you could try till the cows come home you'll never conduct like Kleiber. Mm-hmm. And that's, if there's one overriding beautiful thing about the Lobin work is that it's totally open. And, and, and I'm, t- and I tell my students this, I am trying to get you to find you. And I, and I'll never say you should do it like this. I don't, I don't demonstrate on the podium. I don't say move over let me get up there and show you. Because I don't want I don't want to do that. I want them to find it. Uh, on occasion, if they if they get totally lost and are about to crash and burn, which we've all done, if you've gone to workshops, right? Mm-hmm. I when I was going to workshops, I would probably crash and burn at least once at every workshop. Um, usually because I wasn't getting enough sleep and fatigue got the best of me. But sometimes because I chose a piece I shouldn't have chosen. Uh, but I don't, I, like I said, I don't intervene unless uh, there's about to be a crisis. You know, like mm-hmm. I don't want somebody to do so poorly that they get off the podium and they feel defeated. That doesn't, yeah. that doesn't do anybody any good. Uh, and I kind of, it, what was I, now I lost my other train of thought. I'm so sorry. You can ask me another question now. It was, <laughs> we're talking about something and then you started talking about technique that it wasn't about it wasn't about lobbing and it wasn't about technique. Right. The really impo- something really important. Oh, great. <laughs> oh, 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 the fact, well, as I said lobbing's an open system. Mm-hmm. I think we covered that ground. Yeah. Um, and the fact that uh, my, my job as a teacher is to help students find their own way of communicating physically. Now, you know, like I said, I, I don't believe in anything goes. I, I don't believe in that. Uh, and it's very fashionable now for conductors to do all of these physical histrionics on the stage and contort their bodies mm-hmm. and, and do these extremely aggressive, uh, con- almost confrontational. They have this confrontational body attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, they go way out to the edge of the kinosphere re- regularly. 
um, or they'll go way they'll go way back here behind what I believe is the limit the what I the vertical plane. So okay, I open a can of worms a little bit. I'll speak about planes just for a second. Okay. All right. This is this is space, not universal space. This is your personal space. And Lobin calls that the kinosphere. This you probably have never done this because other conductors that use this work never get to this space. But it's critical. Anyway, and he this isn't he there's nothing arbitrary about Lobin's work. And he saw he had this vision of personal space actually having structure. And the structure has to do with the construction of the human body. And he identifies first um, three dimensions, a vertical dimension, which really identifies and describes our nature as physically standing erect creatures, which kind of puts us apart from other animals. And there's a horizontal dimension, side to side, and a sagittal dimension, which is forward and backward. And together they make a three-dimensional cross. And each, one, each dimension has a single spatial pull, obviously. The vertical dimension has up and down, you know, side to side for the horizontal dimension and forward and backward for the sagittal. If you add a second spatial pull to these dimensions, they change from lines to surfaces. For example, if I do, if I take a, a, a vertical plane, no, vertical dimension, sorry, and stretch it horizontally, I get a vertical plane. And that vertical plane separates front and back. If I take the horizontal dimension and stretch it sagittally, I now have a horizontal plane that separates top and bottom of our bodies. And then if I take the sagittal plane, which is front and back, you know, forward, backward, and stretch it vertically, I get a sagittal plane which bisects us down the middle and identifies our bilateral symmetry. And those three planes, for me, are the, they create boundaries. And the vertical plane is the boundary that I respect that many other conductors don't respect. I'm not saying I'm right and they're wrong. It's a matter of personal preference. I don't believe, I don't believe in conducting, it's like there's no one way to do anything. And I used to say years ago, I used to say to my student, don't do that. Don't ever do that. And of course, what would happen later that week or next year or five years later, they'd see me in a video or in person and they'd say, you told me never (laughs) do that. And there I saw you do it. Mm -hmm. So I stopped saying that. And what I realized, what I realized is it's not so much never do it. It's like I said, it's not, it's not efficient. It doesn't communicate the right things at this moment, but you may find a place where whatever it is you're doing, whether it's 
you're too big or too forward, too back. It may work. So I, I don't ever say that. Um, but anyway, the vertical dimension, the vertical plane separates front and back. And for me, that's the end of the proscenium for conducting. I don't want to go behind. And, <laughs> Into and, the and, audience. Right. I, right. And that includes breaking the line of the body. And we've okay. all seen conductors that have overactive posteriors, right? <laughs> they have they have a separate show going on in the back. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and the horizontal plane to me is the most important boundary because that to me is my beating surface. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to call what we do beating, well, by God, we should be hitting something or brushing something or rolling along something. And the, it's it's the perfect height. It's, I, it's it's in my it's in my center of gravity. Yeah, I see I, I see conductors. They're up here and they stop. They stop their beats way too soon. Yeah. And and I say you didn't finish. <laughs> and, and if you don't finish, how how are they going to know where to play? You know, if if mm-hmm. if you want if you want ensemble precision and if you want if you want entrances that are really together, you better you better be beating you better create something that's concrete mm-hmm. in a in a virtual sense. And you know, not really. You know, you could certainly beat on a tabletop, but you know, a, a timpanist doesn't stop his stroke halfway down to the drum and hope for the best. They finish, mm-hmm. um, and then. Another thing conductors do, that, and there's a lot of this right now, is I find there's too much strength and quickness rising. Yeah. And their beating surface is here, not here. And, I, boy, I, it's hard for me to follow that as yeah. a musician. And yet it, per, it permeates a lot of conducting. It's, a, it's an energetic conv- uh, inversion, and mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know. And like I said, there may be a time where that's appropriate, but usually not. Yeah. And and the last one, the sagittal. Many conductors never get out of the sagittal. Mm-hmm. They beat here, and, or they'll beat. And, oh, good. Yeah, it's a radio show, and I say here and. At the <laughs> But they stay very close to the body, yeah. from the edge of the body in. Mm-hmm. And what happens is they'll go through all kinds of histrionics. They'll go one, two, three, and they'll make a circle, but they won't get away and they'll come back. That's because getting into the horizontal is not comfortable for them. Mm-hmm. And boy, I really have to, we have to work hard sometimes mm-hmm. to get people, to, and usually a movement block like that is the indicator of some kind of mental or emotional block. Mm-hmm. And I know I've had students almost break down when I make them come <laughs> out because there's something yeah. over here that makes them uncomfortable or over mm-hmm. here or what, where, wherever in space they're not comfortable. There's some, and I'm not an analyst, so I don't get into it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I encourage them to explore it on their own, but, I'm not qualified to figure it out, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was hoping that we could, um, if we could take a take a piece of music, and you mentioned um, you mentioned you're doing Brahms 3, 
this yeah. summer with the workshop. Could you maybe walk us through just the first couple measures of all the things that you're thinking of, all the things that you're that you're doing on purpose when you're approaching the opening sure. of that symphony? Sure. Okay, so we have an F triad, mm-hmm. and then we have an F diminished triad, mm-hmm. right? And then we have dee dee da dee da. And let's let's take getting from the beginning of that F triad to the beginning of the theme. Mm-hmm. All right, just those two measures. So, and I don't I don't need I don't need the score for this. Uh, so the 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 dynamic is forte. Yes, and then in the second measure, there's a crescendo, or there's a, I can't remember whether it says crest or hairpin, but it's something that says get louder, right? (laughs) And then, fortissimo, on the, on the, the opening of the theme. Mm -hmm. So what, so I asked, what kind of, what kind of attack, what kind of shape do I want to sound for that downbeat? And how do I want to prepare in such a way that gives the musicians up? And there, there was a, you had a bank of questions that you, you would what, what do I tell my students a lot? Yeah. This is, I, this, I probably use this more than anything else. The musicians need, and it's counterintuitive. Musicians need time to breathe mm-hmm. and space to play. Okay. And by space, I mean what you create, what, you know, how, how you craft the space affects how they play. And breathing, by definition, takes time. Mm-hmm. That's why it's, it's not space to breathe and time to play. <laughs> it's time to breathe and space to play. So I, I want to I gather. Oh, and this brings up... It, you see most conductors, they, they bring, they, they, whatever they do, they do it with both hands and they conduct, they mirror the downbeat of that symphony. Yeah. I, I find it much more informative and useful to show them what I want with the left hand. Okay. And that's stationary. And I just use the right arm, hand, body half to conduct. And I'll probably... I'll do something to indicate the attack on in the left hand, but I'm I'm kind of conservative that way. I I really believe that this is support, this is expression. Mm-hmm. Although there, I do a, I am I at the same time I'm conservative. I also believe that this the right hand when you're showing the time you have to change because yeah. there's a school of conducting that says you do everything the same. Mm-hmm. All the beats the same with the same energy and the orchestra can find its way. I don't subscribe to that theory, <laughs> but you know, that's kind of in some respects, it's kind of the Von Karajan approach. Okay. You know, he, he was, he did a lot of that churning stuff mm-hmm. in the orchestra and like you can't quibble with results. Right? <laughs> so I'm not here to analyze Von Karajan, but back to Brahms. So, I say, okay, so I want to gather, I want to gather energy and at the same time help them breathe. And I find that the vertical dimension is the dimension of breath. Okay. Like it helps, that's, it's inhale and, I, and do I want, 
do I want the baton to slow down and speed up? Do I want, do, in other words, do I want a change in time between the preparatory beat and the approach to the ictus? Or do I want smooth or even? Yeah. Do, I want to, do I want to make it even? And the answer for me is I, I, on this particular occasion, I want more even because I don't want, I don't want resiliency in my beat. It's not that kind of attack. Mm -hmm. It's this big spreading kind of attack. And that brings me to how I decide I want to open up the sound. And it's almost like I'm creating a vacuum into which the sound can flow. And then for the second one, the F diminished, the most important change, although you could argue that change from F to F diminished is pretty important, <laughs> but it's well, not radical, but it's certainly pretty severe. But the most important thing is the change in amplitude. Mm -hmm. And so I make sure that I, as I move, and it's the same kind of attack, the same kind of gathering and then spreading or uh, what's another word? It's not scatter. It is spreading, though. A scatter would be much more free, and that wouldn't that wouldn't do for this. But um, the second one, I concern myself less with tempo and more with the crescendo. And I come down, give the first beat, and I don't move again until I'm satisfied with the crescendo. <laughs> and sometimes that makes the second measure a little longer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And because I tend to, I tend to hold back on a crescendo at the beginning. Yeah. In other words, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want this. I want this, right? Yeah. And more organic, not this uh, para parabolic swelling, <laughs> right? And then my first resilient attack is ba the top when they get to the the violence come in on the F. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does that help? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've, and I've, and so I'm thinking yeah. <laughs> all of those things. Oh, and how much of my how much of my limb do I want to use? Do I want to connect with core? Mm -hmm. So on the preparation, I want core distal. Mm -hmm. I want connect this with this. But I also the sequencing is important because a lot of times when you conduct the sequencing is successive. I know this is true for me, and I believe it's true for most good conductors. Mm -hmm. This moves, especially if you're, you've just given a beat, and you're going to give another beat. You're going to move here first, then here, then here. So wrist, elbow, shoulder. Shoulder, yeah. right. Yeah. In other words, you're not going to do this. But <laughs> having said that, there may be an – it's not never. It's yeah. not never. It, there may be a time where that's appropriate, but the vast majority of times, <laughs> you're either going to move he, uh, distal, hand, wrist, mid, limb, elbow, proximal core, mm -hmm. or you're going to move as a unit. Every, a lot of conductors yeah. have frozen wrists. Mm -hmm. They don't use the wrist at all. They, you know, this, this is all locked up, and I get a lot of students like that. Yeah. And so the first, the first day, maybe two days, I spend getting loose – enlivening that's a good word enlivening mm -hmm. the wrist but for the brahms it's such big sound i don't i use the whole arm yeah 
So I'm not starting from hand and then elbow. It's it's like I'm picking up something big and some s- something that has some weight to it. Mm-hmm. Because I, when I let go, I want it to drop. Yeah. Which brings up a whole another <laughs> component of the law of work that no one talks about, and it's the concept of passive weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, most conductors they never rest. They're yeah. always exerted. There's no there's exertion and then more exertion and then more exertion. Mm-hmm. But you do that, you get tired fast, and then you, if you're exerting, the orchestra is going to feel a certain way because they need to exert and recuperate. So the site, the natural cycle of exertion and recuperation is interrupted, okay, which yeah. which tightens up the performance and makes everybody anxious. But if you can find if you can find a way to let go of part or all of your arm and find this passive weight, you don't, there's very little you have to do as you drop. You just yeah. have to find the right place to stop. Mm-hmm. Instead of, see, if you do, if you do, let me back up a little bit so you can see. Okay. If you do this, two <laughs> things. You, you distort the time. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, you change the tempo by changing that. Uh, actually, you do three things. You uh, create tension in the orchestra because uh, you're tensing up here and you're binding and you're making it almost impossible to play. Yeah. This, this The whole concept of passive weight and the use of gravity to help – is tied up with the level of predictability okay. in your conducting. Okay. Because when performers, why, and I can speak of this as a performer, because <laughs> I still play, you know, I still play. As performers, we take in information from the conductor based on what we have learned as human beings <laughs> about object behavior, uh-huh. not not human behavior, but object behavior. One is object permanence. Uh, the other is, uh, and, and what we know about Newton's law, right? <laughs> Gravitation. Yeah. And so if we, if we can engage that instead of pushing down with strength, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is an affinity, so if it's already a find, if, if there's already an affinity between sinking and strength, there's very little you have to add yeah. to a downward yeah. motion, even if it is strong. And you, ha- you have to be very, very careful, for example. Ready Requiem. <laughs> yes, right, for the last time. So that, that's a case where, one, I'm going to be sagittal, I'm going to use the sagittal plane. I'm going to stay close. And I'm going to actually add strength when I fall, mm-hmm. but I have to be careful. It's almost like you have to lightly bind your strength so you don't come down too quickly. Yeah. So I'm still I'm I'm still somewhere between passive weight, letting it drop, and strength. And it may change it that it, it depends. One day I may add lots of strength. Another day I may feel totally different. 
and try to balance slightly passive weight with a little bit of strength. But for especially for men, uh, you have to use your strength judiciously because mm-hmm. we tend to muscle things. Men do, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. For women, I, I encourage I do more of encouragement for them to use access their strength because like I said, unless uh, someone is the female athlete athlete, uh, I better stop pretty soon because I'm running out of talk here. Uh, (laughs) Unless, unless you're an athlete, you know, a lot of women aren't accustomed to moving forcefully. You know, that's not, that's not their Bailey week. Um, That's not to say there aren't exceptions, but and that's a not, that boy that's a, a strength of the lobbing work that uh, doesn't get that doesn't get addressed very often. Yeah. I actually teach women conductors very differently than I teach men conductors. Okay. And it has to do with the differences in their in difference between male and female anatomy, and uh, how, like I said, how comfortable they are with strength. Uh, for example. I, the the horizontal plane for a man is somewhere right around the navel, you know, usually. Mm-hmm. But for a woman, it's a little higher. It's at the bottom of, like, the bottom of the midriff. Okay. Because, you see, women's hips are positioned, their pelvis is positioned mm-hmm. differently. And it's also larger, but it's positioned in a way that – and their and their scapulas are hooked up to their clavicles differently, and so if I I have found over the years that if I ask a woman to move like I show the men, they're invariably unhappy. Mm-hmm. And so I started addressing that, and what I found is women are more comfortable a little higher, like their their uh, I, what I call place, like where they start. Mm-hmm. Uh, women, men are comfortable a little lower, but and women are comfortable with their arms a little farther out from the body than men. Uh, usually, yeah. I ask the men to find to find a place, big P place, that's very similar to where your hands would be if you put your if you put your hands at the uh, C C four. Or C three or C four, third space C octave, and um, middle C, give or take, maybe you know G, do, uh, sol rather, G, G uh, below the staff, mm-hmm. and but for women, they, they actually need to raise their, uh, they need to open up the space between their rib cage and upper arms, or they get tired. And these are just things that I've observed over the years and and also because uh, all of my Laban inspector instructors, inspectors, they inspect me too. (laughs) All of my Laban instructors have been women and you will find, you will find in the Laban community, there's many more women than men. And I think that's partially because a lot of, a lot of Laban, people are also dancers and there are yeah. more women and the men in dance. So mm-hmm. it's a kind of self-selecting subculture. And every, I, by the way, I, uh, I actually finished coursework for a certified movement anal- analyst. 
that's a, that's a two year lobbing course <laughs> that is like getting a a, a master's in lobbying. Yeah. Um, and I someday I'll finish. It's like I <laughs> you know, all I have left is the thesis. Oh, but yeah. but in my last semester of the lobbing work, I tore a rotator cuff. And it took almost over a year and a half to heal, and I couldn't, I couldn't use the computer, and f actually I couldn't conduct either, you know. Mm, yeah. And I was afraid to do the surgery because mm. I was afraid I'd lose, I'd lose range of motion, and that oh, to me is yeah. worse than pain, <laughs> range of motion, you know. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. But you know, I did recover, and but so what happened was I never did the project, and then at my, I got involved with my life again, and I just had. I have yet to finish the project, but yeah. I will. And it's really for more for myself than I, you know, I don't, I don't think, I don't think actually having the certificate is going to affect my teaching one way or the other, but it'll, it's like I said, it'll complete the sense of accomplishment I have with respect to actually digging really deep into yeah. the, into the love and work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, it seems like there's there's quite deep to go <laughs> with it. Um, yeah, 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 right. And you know, the the beauty is though, you can go it, you can go as deep or stay as shallow as you want. It, it look, I think it boils down to this: if, as a conductor, you see conducting as mostly task oriented traffic direction then the lobbing work is probably not all that important. Mm -hmm. But if you see conducting as a movement art where you're trying to, like I said, embody the music to the best of your ability and communicate as much useful information, but no more than necessary, <laughs> because I don't, I don't believe in conductors that distract. I, I want to disappear when I conduct for the yeah. audience. I don't want them to watch me at all. Uh, but, and that doesn't mean I crouch down behind the podium or anything, but uh, it's, just, <laughs> it's, it's, it's my attitude. But if you feel that conducting is a movement art and that there's always more about the movement side of conducting that you can learn and profit from, then this work is definitely going to be relevant for you. Yeah. And I will say that I have never, once I started the lobbin work, I have never again felt like I'm not getting any better. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, it's like, I'm still, I continue to get revelations and new understanding about how to move in ways that best support the performance. Mm -hmm. And, and I can always, I can, the nice thing is even if I work everything out and I'm consciously moving with intent, sometimes it doesn't work. You know, yeah. it's still now my batting average is better. You know, I'm, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, in other words, the, the percentage of times that what I do yields the result I expect is much higher, but sometimes it doesn't work. And in that case, I'm still not stuck. Yeah. Because I can quick, I can quickly say, okay, what what did I, what did I do? Okay, to wait, right, space. Oh, 
I need, I need to be, I need to be closer to my body. I need to be further out. I need to bind the flow. I need to use a different space effort. I should be, I should be direct and as opposed to flexible. Um, I should be using successive, you know, everything that I've accumulated. I go through that list and I very quickly, I can come up with a solution that usually solves the problem. And I think that's, that's part of the reason, like I said earlier that I save rehearsal time because yeah. I don't have to explain instead of trying to say, well, I'm going to go into subdivided three here and then I'm going to take a loofed here and then <laughs> I go and, and then I beat the eighth note. Yeah. We've all been through, especially in the pit, we've all been to these ridiculous talkovers where the conductor tells you what they're going to do. And then after 45 minutes of that, they start and then half of what they told you they were going to do doesn't pan out yeah. anyway. <laughs> so, um, with uh, yeah, with this, uh, I'm never at a loss for an alternative solution. Yeah, which is so, was something I think we got all use mm-hmm. as conductors. Mm-hmm. All right. So if a, if a listener is, is interested in learning more about your workshops or even just finding a you know a, a primer, a good introduction for Laban, where is the where's the best place to find that information? Right. Well, um, the institute website is. Uh, embodied conducting one, you know, all run together.com. Mm-hmm. That's the Institute website. And uh, if you want to read something, I, I, I have a new go to book uh, for lob, you know, people interested in lobbing. It's a book I wish I wrote. It's that, you know, I mean, it's really, yeah. really fine. It's called, Everybody is a body. <laughs> and it really approaches the Lobin work from the non-Lobin practitioner point of view. It makes the work much more accessible. See, when I, it was, in 1995, you, you had no, not much choice but to get into these heady, very technical books. Yeah. that take a long time to digest if you wanted to do this work. But, uh, and the authors of this book are uh, Karen Studd with two Ds and Laura Cox with one X. <laughs> um, and you can get it on Amazon. I recommend the second edition. They just, this is, it was new last spring. I think it came out in, in uh, March or April last okay. year. And it's, it's like I said, it's very readable and it's oddly enough, it kind of approaches the the ordering of the material is very similar to the, the ordering of the material that I do for conductors, which I kind of made me feel good, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and by the way, even though, um, you know, I've had all this lobbing training, I still run every single thing that I teach by my Lobin mentor. Oh yeah. Because it's important to get it right mm-hmm. for me. You know, it's important for me to get it right because there's so much misinformation about this work um, yeah. already there, which makes it very difficult 
to encourage people to try it because they make a judgment about it and then they think they understand it. Oh yeah. Yeah. I did yeah. those eight lobbing gestures. I, yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't think I need it. And I said, no, you know, yeah. you, know, you haven't <laughs> even scratched the surface, but mm-hmm. I understand how you can feel that way. So, mm-hmm. yeah. um, although, like I said, I don't get nearly as much resistance, but you know, changing the way conducting is taught is a very big job. Yeah. And I don't know, I don't know how far I'm going to get with it because <laughs> as with anything new and, and different, there's a lot of inertia and resistance. Mm-hmm. There just is. That's the way the world works. And even some of my friends and colleagues, I, I whether out of fear, like they're afraid to get into a, an area that they don't know or whether it's just, they don't think it's necessary. Um, even like I said, even some of my friends and colleagues, I, I'll, I'll tell them something and I'll encourage them and you know what I get back, right? Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, at that time I, I realized that, okay, I'm not, I, I don't think I should broach the subject again, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. they're in, it's not, if they were really interested, they wouldn't say that's interesting. Yeah. They would ask questions. <laughs> they would say, I want to come to a, one of your sessions, they would say something different. Mm-hmm. They don't even, they, that, Oh, and if, and I do have publications too. Um, boy, that was kind of a, a terrible segue. But <laughs> uh, if you go to my woefully plain drab personal website, that's functional, but you know, I have, I, I have to do something about that. And it's just charlesgambetta.com. And you click on publications, you can find several, several lobbying related publications. And uh, the one I encourage you or anyone to start with is the uh, Coda Journal article. Yeah. Because that one is essentially, with some updates and changes, it's essentially my dissertation. Uh, but only the second and fourth chapters okay. and the second chapter or actually the, yeah, this, excuse me. The second chapter is uh, a brief, like 15 page explanation of, of body effort, space and shape. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth chapter is an in-depth discussion of effort and, yeah. and how effort is the confluence between movement and music. It's the, it's really the place in the unfolding of movement itself where the conductor's way of thinking and the musician's way of thinking meets. Yeah. Uh, because musicians, although we, the way we learn instruments or vo- voice or whatever is such an elongated time intensive process that uh, we don't even know that we're learning effort (laughs) while we're doing it because we take, you know, literally thousands of hours to develop the technique. You know, most conductors don't have that luxury. Uh, Ideally we should and would, but it's just not the way it works. So, 
and, and that there's another important thing about the lava where it compresses time frames for you while you're learning. Mm-hmm. If you do the if you do the work, especially if you do it in the order that I have it organized, but it's the Coda Journal article. If you're really fascinated, <laughs> or if you're if you have trouble sleeping at night, you can download the whole dissertation, and <laughs> I bet you that'll put you to sleep for sure. <laughs> uh, because it's you know I had to do a review of. Uh, literature, the the whole dissertation thing, um, mm-hmm. and, and I, there's actually a study in there where I took uh, four conductors at various stages of development, and I gave them five hours of love and instruction over a period of six weeks. Okay. And at the beginning of that period, I had them conduct the opening 150 measures or so. Uh, Beethoven's Coriolan Overture. That's a pretest. And then at the end of the instruction, I gave them two, I can't remember whether it was two or three weeks to assimilate, and I gave them a post test. Mm-hmm. And the changes were quite remarkable. And oh, yeah. I had I had them, I had both pretest and post test reviewed by a panel of conductors and a panel of certified movement at analysts and there was universal agreement that the conductors improved a great deal and the internal agreement between the Laban practitioners was astounding. They went so far as to say, and they would know because they were experts that there are things that they see in the post test that could only be attributed to the Laban training. Mm-hmm. That's that's to me that's pretty powerful. And one last thing, I did not teach any conducting, no music. We okay. did not discuss the repertoire. All I did was show them the lobbing work mm-hmm. because I I didn't want I didn't want interference or somehow to get the study distorted because I'm a good teacher. And if mm-hmm. I was te- if I was teach if I were teaching conducting using the Laban work, it would be very difficult to know where <laughs> the effect, whether the effect was because of my teaching ability or because of the Laban work. Mm-hmm. So, I kept, so I kept it very simple and compartmentalized. And that was, that was probably the most important thing for me with respect to the study, was making sure, you know, mm-hmm. like I said, I, I wasn't. And I, did, and I really didn't. I didn't even really teach them the Laban work. I showed it to them and had them do things, but I didn't really explain it in the same way that I do now. Yeah. And that's at charlesgambetta.com. And I, I had hoped, I had hoped to have the videos ready for today. So I could say, and we have videos, but <laughs> of course, you know, post-production, takes more time than you expect, you know, cause I have, so I have a couple of, and, and these are short lessons. These are like 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. And they address, and the first one is unfortunately mostly talk, but I need to address, I wanted to address the whole first and explain a little bit about the work, but I end with uh, a couple of little uh, uh, teasers, so to speak. I show, mm-hmm. I, I show, I show everybody a couple of things and then on the second video, I start with body. 
and I don't even know how many I'm going to have. Uh, but they're it's that the the video lessons are not intended as a substitute for getting with someone that really understands the Laban work and hopefully conducting and getting because you can although you it it will help even if you do the work wrong mm -hmm. it will still help you but it'll help a lot more <laughs> if you get it right you know yeah. it's like it's like the difference the difference between self-taught you know learning trying to learn an instrument on your own and having someone help you and teach you 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 won't you there's a lot of errors that develop and, and deficiencies that develop when you're self-taught that you can avoid if you have a good teacher. Yeah. And this is something I think that conducting you really need a teacher. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, yeah, we'll we can definitely hold this also until those come out and then and then and then share those in concurrence. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sweet. We, we can we'll we'll stay in contact. Um I've actually well, run out of time over here, so Okay. Um, unfortunately, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to um, you know close out the episode. But that's uh, fine. Charles, thank you so much for for joining us. Thank you so much for for digging into this. So oh, much. my and, pleasure. Uh, um, one more thing. You had a yeah. question in your little sheet. Uh, your favorite saying as a teacher, and I told you one, and mm -hmm. and, I, and you don't. This doesn't have to be on the thing, but it's <laughs> it's so uh, on the you know on the final product. But it is such a great thing. I was, I was taking a, a workshop with Lewis Lane, who incidentally is my favorite teacher. Even, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I, different teachers you get different things from. But Lewis Lane and I really clicked. You know, like there was a, there was a, nice, uh, a, a nice energy between the two of us. Yeah. And I just finished, right, one of the sessions with orchestra. And he was saying something about, I wish you would have done this and everything. I said, yeah, I know. And and I gave him some, you know, not an excuse, but I said, yeah, I'm really sorry. I, I did the best I could. And then Lewis Lane says, I only want everything, Mr. Gambetta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I said, I, I said, yes, sir, that makes two of us. Right? Yeah, yeah. But it's such a great – and he said it with such love and kindness, too. It wasn't mm – -hmm. you know, it wasn't like he was putting me down. It was like – he just he expects so much of you, you know, yeah. as a teacher. Yeah. All right. Hey, this has been a tremendous amount of fun. And anytime you want to talk about it, you don't even have to have an interview. You can contact <laughs> me. Like if yeah. you if you read the article or something and you have a question, let me know. Of course. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today for this episode and for all the episodes you've listened to in the past and all in the future. We really appreciate all of our listeners. Thank you for interacting with us, suggesting guests. This is exactly why we do this. You can find everything on our website at podiumtimepod.wordpress.com, and then we share everything also on our socials and on, um, on our email list as well. If you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, please head over to patreon.com podiumtimepod. Mendelssohn's Italian was performed by Stefano Ligorati, and Beethoven's Eggman Overture was performed by the Czech National Symphony Orchestra. 